Hey, Fidelity, how can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Oh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Grant Thornton is a proud partner of the Players' Championship and the PGA Tour. We believe the status quo leaves the business world spinning its wheels. We help organizations combat it by offering fresh thinking, collaboration, and the audit, tax, and advisory services they need to achieve their future faster. Welcome to Status Go. For more information, visit grantthornton.com slash theplayers. Welcome into the Golf Channel Podcast. I'm your host, Will Gray. We have a special edition today brought to you by our partners at Grant Thornton. And we are taping right now live in the clubhouse at TPC Sawgrass. It's Players Week, and I am joined by two guests today. We're going we're gonna to shake things up. We've got some, some studio folks, but first of all, a man who doesn't need an introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Uh, former world number one, open champion, won the players. Back, happy, I assume, to have it back in March. Absolutely. There you go. Uh, David Duvall is here. And we also have Jason Hodell, the CEO of Skull Candy. Shout out to folks who are listening to this podcast using Skull Candy headgear. Uh, you might get special bonus points yeah, here. Yeah, we like those guys. There you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so Jason, David, thanks for, for joining us. We're, we're doing a theme here today. We're talking about some of the cross-section of golf and business in terms of the mental side of golf, the culture side of business, how everything kind of interacts and how the planning can affect the performance. And David, I want to start with you. There are two uh, aspects when I, when I thought about this podcast where I wanted to start. And first, we're going to go to the 59. Because I think that when you talk about mental performance on the golf course, it's fascinating to me to see how you're able to achieve things that have otherwise are, are borderline unprecedented. And you would fall into that category having shot a 59 in the final round, first time ever that was done on Sunday to win a golf tournament. So take me back to the Hope uh, 20 years ago and, and just your mental framework. What allows you as a player when you're in the 13th fairway and you know you're on a heater, you know you've got a good round, but what allows you to kind of break through the barriers of knowing that you haven't shot a 59 before but still believing that you can do it right now when it counts? It's probably a fairly long story. Um, you got a Cliff Notes version? <laughs> I had played the two weeks prior uh, in Kapalua at, at the Tournament of Champions uh, and, and won by nine shots. I was playing, obviously, very good golf. Uh, I had a, I don't know, 30-foot putt on last hole for Eagle to win by 10, and I think it lipped out or barely missed. I was <laughs> kind of actually upset. <laughs> I wanted to win by double digits. But anyways, I went, then I went and uh, skied or snowboarded for whatever that is, seven or eight days. I uh, went down to the desert and played and, and was, you know, I was 
playing well, obviously, and a little bit rusty. But the, back then, the, the, the Desert Classic was a five-day event, uh, not four. Play with the amateurs the first four days, rotated golf course, things of that nature. Uh, and, and through f the first four days, I, I made the cut, obviously. I was 13 under par. And I felt like I had played okay, um, closer to good than bad, um, but hadn't made any putts. Uh, it wasn't quite clicking. And uh, that morning, hit, uh, warming up, I didn't actually hit a golf ball towards a target. I simply asked my caddy, uh, just tell me if the golf ball is going where I'm aiming. Okay. Because well, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something I did a fair amount at times because if it's going where you're aiming, it's easy to correct your aim. You know, you might visually, you might think you're aiming at the, the, the corner of the room over there when you're actually aiming over there. But as long as the ball's going over there, you can change your aim and go and hit it back towards your target. And so he's like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, that one maybe touch left. Yes, yeah, you know, all day. And, uh, and as much as anything, I just hadn't been able to shake a putt in. And, uh, and the greens are perfect out in the desert, absolutely perfect. Best putting surfaces you'll ever see. Anyways, I hit in the first fairway, uh, off, uh, starting out, hit a wedge to about five feet, had that kind of slightly tricky putt, you know, a little bit downhill, mm -hmm. left to right. And, and the thought that goes through my head, first basic thought of the day is, you're bound to make one of these. <laughs> 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 and, and I did. I shook it in, caught the right lip, and then just kind of went from there. I believe I turned in 31. I birdied the last hole on the front, number nine, to shoot 31. Hit a nice eight iron. To, yeah, I don't forget, five or six, seven feet, something like that. And then after that, it just kind of kept, kept making birdies. And it got to a point where it was almost comical because I'd ask my caddy, Mitch, uh, you know, to read a putt. I think the one on 13 is the one that really stood out. I believe it was, no, it was 12. And uh, I said, what do you think? He's like, well, it's straight, you know, because they were all two <laughs> feet. <laughs> He's like, well, it's straight. And then uh, the hardest putt of the day, funny enough, um, I was playing with Bob Tway and, and uh, Jeff Maggart. And on 17, a pretty difficult hole. Uh, it's not like it's a hardest wedge or nine iron, but the pin's cut tight on, this, on the left. And, and Bob hit it out to the right. Mine ended up out to the right a little bit, but he was a little bit further away, so call it three or four feet. And I watched him put it down the hole, down to the hole, and it just raced by a good five or six feet. So I even knew how fast it was. I still managed to knock it four feet by. <laughs> Making that putt coming back was the hardest shot of the day because I knew if I don't make that putt, I don't have a chance to make three on the last hole and, and break 60. Um, I was asked up in the booth if I was more concerned with the score or winning the golf tournament, and they, they made the assumption that I was more concerned with winning the golf tournament. I was like, no, I'm more concerned with shooting the score because I didn't know if I'd ever have another opportunity to do that. Yeah. I felt like there had been a couple occasions where uh, I, I should have broken 60, but didn't. didn't. I played well enough to, um, and I didn't know if it would come around again, and I felt that I'm definitely going to win more golf tournaments, but I might not have this opportunity. So, And then I just on the last green, I uh, just focused on the simple things, uh, made sure not to overanalyze, not to overread it, uh, go through my routine. And if anything, I tried to speed up my routine and be a little bit faster than I normally would. Uh, and just be as reactionary as I can. See, I love the fact that I can't tell you what I ate for breakfast on Tuesday, but you remember the club you hit into the 11th <laughs> hole 20 years ago <laughs> and which way the putt was breaking. Yeah. Uh, I got to think it's always good when the four-foot putt is the hardest shot of the day. That's, that's a sign you're playing well. Jason, I want to turn it to you. I know we, we talked a bit beforehand, and, and you have a military background. You're a graduate from West Point. And so when we, we talk about business and culture, I, I'm interested to know how much – 
that influences the way that you shape the culture at Skull Candy in terms of having that military background, creating a team environment, and, and how that impacts your leadership style. Sure. So a lot of people think that because you're a former military officer or a ranger or this sort of thing that you, you can treat your employees like troops. And the truth is, uh, of course, in this day and age, nothing could be farther from the <laughs> truth, right? You got to leave that behind. Um, and then people have this conception that kind of in the army or the rangers that um, officers can just tell people what to do. And they do it. They follow that order. Um, they will, but they're not doing it at the end of the day just because you told them to do something. They're bought in. They care. You know, it's kind of uh, uh, the opening remarks there. And so with Skull Candy, um, the, the way we do that, um, culture is everything for us because our biggest competitors are Apple, Beats, Bose, and Sony. And then you got little old Skull Candy, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, for those that don't know, we're, we're about a $300 million a year business, so not that big in the big scheme of things. But we're competing against the biggest companies in the world. I mean, we're talking Apple and Sony, for gosh sakes. And whenever you walk in our building and you go upstairs to your office, we have a mural right up the top of the stairs, and it says Gritty Underdog. And there's a nine-year-old little boy there with his helmet on. He's about to drop into the skateboard ramp, and all around him are the... Uh, you know, the high schoolers that look kind of intimidating, and he's the gritty underdog. He's about to drop in. And that's a mentality. It's just like a college coach trying to get his team amped up, like, hey, they don't respect us. We're the underdogs. Let's go out there and shock the world, like UMBC. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to believe that. And we try to bring that every day because, for sure, we're undermanned. It's Skull Candy <laughs> versus Apple. You know, that's a, we're a big underdog there. Um, but we have to go out there and win market share. When we talk about gritty underdog, David, I, I'll turn it back to you. And I certainly think back to Brookline in 99. Oh, yeah. And if you want to talk about, you know, the, the chicken and egg phenomenon, I think a lot of people get caught up with, with is what comes first? Does the confidence come first or do the results come first? Mm -hmm. And that was a situation where you guys were getting beat pretty good for mm -hmm. a couple of days. And you sat in that room Saturday night with, with Captain Ben Crenshaw. And somehow the confidence was born to be able to create that that comeback Sunday afternoon where we actually saw you get animated on a golf course and that really, that's saying something. So, so what, when you take, take us back to that, that time, Saturday night, Sunday morning, what was the key to be able to believe that the comeback was possible even facing a 10-6 deficit and knowing that the results through those first couple of days hadn't gone your way? Yeah, as much as anything in those events and, and it's kind of where the heated argument Brandon and I have came from a few <laughs> years ago, you have to be a part of it and in the room to, to understand what's going on. And, and as players, we know what we had done. We know what we had poured into it. And, f and simply the results weren't there at that point. But the difference was as if you went through each match and in each half point or point that had been awarded, it was simply, you know, a 35, 40 foot putt made here, a pitch in there. That was the only difference from being very even or us even being ahead. And so when you break things down like that, um, we felt like we had played absolutely as well as they had, but hadn't made a single thing, hadn't uh, pitched a, a, a shot in when, when you needed to or, 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 or when it was an opportune time to flip a match. And so I think as much as anything, it's a, it was about analyzing what had transpired over a couple of days, really being honest about have we just simply been beaten and outplayed or, or are we doing well and do we have a chance? And uh, part, of, part of the success on Sunday came from putting out a proper lineup, a proper order. Yeah. There's really something to that. And I believe at that point, you may know, you probably remember better, um, they had 
one player had played one three, match. Yeah, had three guys. They and were two hadn't even played. Yeah. Was it three? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think you get it right. One, one had played one. And two and players and, had not even uh, played yeah. yet. N- not a wise decision. You know, mm-hmm. that's you, you got to get somebody out there and give them some a feeling for it. Because if you throw them out there on Sunday in singles matches, the, the atmosphere is uh, a bit overwhelming, <laughs> to say the least. So we submitted and basically just front-loaded. You know, just uh, we have to go get points. I mean, through the first six matches, we need to catch up, you know, if we want to win this. And uh, we did that, and then we saw they put up, submitted their, their, their lineup, and we're like, this actually looks pretty good. This, we couldn't have asked for it to come out better. And, and to kind of jump ahead a little bit, as you're out there playing and competing and, and the guys in front of you are su- succeeding, the guys behind you are succeeding, it, it's motivating for you. And I remember we get up to the ninth green, and at that point I was uh, six up on Jesper through eight holes. <laughs> uh, and the scoreboard on the ninth green faced towards the back of the green where the grandstands were. You couldn't see it from the front. Jesper actually ultimately won that hole with an eagle. Um, but as I got up to the green and kind of looked back at the scoreboard, it was just red, 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 you know. And it was three up, four up, two up, one up, three up. It w- and it was just, it was a beatdown. This is happening. Right. Yeah. This could happen. And and, uh, and so it just kind of all carried through the day. And, and we talk about in sport uh, that the feeling's palpable. You can, it's in the air. And that's one of those situations where you could definitely feel it. You could feel something was going on, and, and you knew it. And... And I think as much as anything, through that, you, you, you believe in yourself, you believe in your teammates, you believe in the, c- the captain's decisions, and you, and you uplift each other through that process. You were also involved in the, in the team room as an assistant at the Ryder Cup this past mm-hmm. year in Paris. And so just in, in terms of the Ryder Cup and this, this team mentality, it's so unique in an individual sport. How mm-hmm. does your, your mental approach as a player or even as, as an assistant, how does that change versus the other 51 weeks of the year, when it's you and your caddy, and now you've got you and 11 other guys, and you're counting points. I believe as much as anything, you still have to pay attention to yourself and uh, do your job to best help your teammates and best help your captains out. Having experienced this side of it uh, this past year as a vice captain, um, it is truly an entirely thankless job being the captain of the Ryder Cup. It's it's a difficult position to be in, Uh, you know, as a player, you know the captain is doing his best, but you don't really know all the time and the effort and the work that goes into it, um, you know, and, and how much longer he might be at the golf course or he and some of the vice captains may be at the golf course doing different things. And it's kind of like crossing the T's and dotting the I's and going through all these different scenarios that uh, and trying to trying to play out things how, how, the, how they could do. And then you set a plan up. And this is probably something you could address to a lot better in business. Then you set a kind of a plan in motion. But, you know, you're going this way. And then one thing happens, and all of a sudden you're going that way. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it at that point, except reassess and do the best you can heading in that direction now. And, and, and those things inevitably happen in those team competitions. And at the end of the day, um, we simply got outplayed. Um, it has nothing to do – I saw Brooks Kepka do a – was talking about the other day, you know, he's in the team room. He knows what's going on. He knows the heart of it and, and, and the time and passion. And, and you know, talk about – because people want to say that the European team, it, it, they're more cohesive. It's a better unit. It's just untrue. Um, but you, you pour everything into it, and at the end of the day, you know, I, I've been asked what I thought the biggest difference was, and, and I, I thought it was the fact that the greens were like putting on this carpet. <laughs> it wasn't the rough. It wasn't, you know – 
it was it, they were so incredibly slow. I was with a few of the guys all week, and it just was difficult for our players to get the mm-hmm. golf ball to the hole. Well, a lot of, as you pointed out, a lot of what you described with that captain's role seems like it checked many boxes of what a CEO yep. goes into yep. each and every day. And, and Jason, first of all, I've, I neglected to mention this. We have to do tail of the tape for any time we get a non-golfer on the podcast. Uh, eight handicap, is that about right? Yes. All right, so that's, that's pretty good. I put you ahead of the curve. <laughs> so you're a baller. You can yeah, play. That's I mean, that's especially real. for a guy that lives in Utah. That's yeah. pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, Four-month season. Yeah, exactly. you got to make the best of it when you, yeah. when you have it. So, uh, but, but there's obviously a lot of, of interplay between golf and business. And I want to sure. talk about from a strategic approach as CEO. We, we look at it, you know, the, the sawgrass course here, and there's a lot of par fives. Think of 16. Are you mm-hmm. going to go for it mm-hmm. or are you going to lay up? Yep. And that has to evolve, I would think, somewhat in terms of how you conduct your business, how yep. you launch products, yep. how you create a strategy of when do you know to kind of press it and yep. when do you know to, to lay back and how does that play into just the overall culture as you try and explain those decisions to your staff? Absolutely. So, you know, hearing David talk about when things go wrong, what do you do, how do you react, um, culture plays so much into that, you know, because something's always going to go wrong, you know, for sure. Um, so you have gritty underdog as a value, and other values banded together. And if you talk about that and you really appreciate it and hold it up, hey, are we banded together? You use that in conversations to talk about things that are going wrong. You have an after-action review, and you talk about it, and sometimes that can help take the emotion out of it. So now you're making a big decision, you know, a big risk-reward. Go for it over water, the par five, or, you know, layup type thing. Um, in Skull Candy, we have those decisions quite often. A good analogy would be, um, are we going to try to launch this product in this factory, or are we going to give this other factory a shot? Okay, it happens all the time. And with new factories, you know, you might get some cost reduction, let's just say 10% cheaper, you know, to use a number, but there's also a chance that they can't figure it out. Or, status quo, you stay here, and you launch the product, and you know, you spend a half million dollars, but it could be worth tens of millions of dollars in revenues. You know, kind of, so we're going to take a shot at cost reduction. We're going to launch products here. And bringing it back to mindfulness and culture, whenever you are talking to the team about, okay, guys, we're going to go for it. We're going to focus on this new factory over here. This is full on. We've got to fly to China, help them all we can. we got to be banded together because we're the gritty underdog. This is what we do. It's very much a team concept. Yep. David, I want to take things back inside the ropes. And, and when we're talking about, you know, a normal PGA Tour event, you're still very competitive on the PGA Tour when you're not wasting time with podcasts. With <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when you're thinking about the mental approach of a, of a competitive round, where do you get more of an edge? Is it in planning out your strategy and how to attack the course before you tee it up? Or is it in your ability to react to situations that you encounter once the round begins? I would imagine it's equally both. Um, you can do all the planning in the world, um, but you can't necessarily account for everything that's going to happen. Exactly. And so you have to be prepared to change course and to, to react and to stay present. Um, you know, I, there's, there's, you know, it's week in, week out, it's maybe not as important if you're playing, um, uh, a regular tour event compared to the majors, the players, the Ryder Cup. Um, but you really have to be prepared. Uh, there's There's been uh, multiple situations in, in my career where um, I've kind of run through the day, you know, getting ready. And and, and one example is one, one event, um, I'm paired with a player, and 
and uh, very slow golfer. I knew that <laughs> I knew that things were going to happen. I knew that he'd be, be backing off all day. I knew that we were going to be on the clock at some point. I knew, you know, but I was prepared for all of these things. And, uh, you know, ultimately when the official came up to us on the seventh fairway and said, y'all are out of position, we're going to have to start timing you, I said, well, what took you so long? <laughs> where you, where you been? <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's get going. Um, and, and And I think as much as anything, you have you have to uh in that process uh stay present mm-hmm. and pay attention to the little things um you know y- you can control how you go into something you can control how you react to something but you can't control what's being thrown at you and so if you're mindful of of the little things you're doing uh, of of your process of your routine you you can kind of overcome some of these those these hurdles that are thrown at you yeah, I mean, you talk about control. I would think that the control is a fleeting thing in golf and in, and in business as well. Jason, I'll turn it to you. In terms of when you're when you're building a culture, when you're leading a, a team, how do the internal perceptions and how you guys view yourself, how are those influenced by the external mm-hmm. perceptions and how the industry views you, how your competitors view you? Mm-hmm. How do you, how does the the interplay work between those two? And is there a struggle to keep the external from seeping into how you guys view yourself and how you operate on an internal perspective? So to make that easier, what we always try to do is make sure there's full alignment between the vision of the company, kind of our mission, which at Skull Candy, it's like what Shrikant was saying, we want people to be able to enjoy music. We want to inspire people through the enjoyment of music and our devices like no other brand. So it's music, music, music. Well, that's good because most of our workforce are fairly young people and they love music and we're constantly generating content and kind of feeding our consumer base because they love music, and Best Buy and Walmart love Skull Candies of brand on their shelves because we bring in that kind of a consumer, which is different from kind of a technical consumer that might buy Bose, for example. That's mm-hmm. a really good example, right? So trying to keep alignment between internal and external, and then having that alignment, that thread, be something that kind of everybody loves and brings emotion to bear. Well, now you got people at work, and they're like, okay, I need to make something that's con- going to compete against AirPods as a true wireless earbud, and I need to make this special so that they can hear something in the music that no other brand can bring. So we just launched our, our true wireless, you know, to compete with AirPods. And if you read the Forbes review of it from a couple weeks ago, the one thing the guy called out, I mean, we couldn't even have faked this thing better, <laughs> was the bass response and how that, you know, for the reader and the contributing author there was, hey, I, the bass response in the, my favorite songs on the Skull Candies are better than my AirPods. You know, I, we couldn't have faked that any better, you know, but it goes back to that thread. It's all about music. And if you remember that, people stay focused. Yeah. Yep. David, when you were at, you know, world number one, when you were winning a major championship, you were open perhaps more so than other players about the impact of some of these external perceptions that might have on, on just how you comport yourself on a, on a day-to-day basis and, and just some of the struggles with the pressures of you know, getting to world number one versus remaining world number one, things like that. What was that like for you as a player trying to balance the pressures that uh, you know, the media or the other people would, would perhaps put on you or expectations versus the expectations you had on yourself? I think as much as anything, and we were talking about it, uh, I was talking about it in a little media scrum uh, yesterday, uh, which I forget which player, current player they're talking about, but uh, might have been Rory McIlroy. Uh, 
He comes but, up from time to time. But yeah. it might have been bro- – I'm not sure, yeah. but they were saying, you know, do, us talking about it and writing about it, is it putting more pressure on them? I, I said, trust me. That sounds like a rule. You don't have that power, yeah. though. Trust me, you don't have that power as a, as a reporter, as a writer. <laughs> I don't have that power being in TV. The pressure that these individuals put on themselves far exceeds anything you could ever say or do. The expectations they have for their – abilities and their success and their achievements is, is far greater than anything you could ever write or I could ever say on the television. Mm-hmm. And I know that because I lived it and I was there. Um, you know, when it was written about me, um, like, that's great, but, you know, I know what I'm trying to accomplish. I know what I feel like I can do. And what you're going to say does not affect anything I'm going to do. Um, and so I pay attention to the things I want to do, the things I feel like I need to do to, to succeed. Um, and this is just all external noise, you know, as much as anything. I think the one thing that baffled me as much as anything, and maybe because I, I think pretty uh, black and white, um, when I won here uh, in 99, for probably a year or so, and we were on a, the, the world ranking was on a three-year mm-hmm. scale back then, three-year rotating point system, as opposed to two years now. Um, for probably... Upwards of a year, a lot of people were saying, "Why? How is he not number one? The way the, all the tournaments he's won, all the success he's been having, you know." And it just fell back to the process, the scale, and how it works, you know. And so, along with doing winning here, the next morning I woke up, and so the thing that baffled me as much as anything was that the day before I was ranked number two in the world, and certainly people wanted to talk to me. But the next day, when I woke up, having just simply slept. <laughs> I was supposed to know all the answers, mm-hmm. you know. So with that, with being the kind of the top dog, you're sp- all of a sudden now you have to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's like, all I did was win yesterday, go to sleep, wake up, and now I know everything. <laughs> you know, or at least I'm supposed right, to. Right, you're supposed to, exactly. You know, and, and I'm like, I'm still me. I'm st- I still think like I think. I still approach it the way I approach it. I'm still going to say, as you know, what I <laughs> want to say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Be careful the question you ask. You might not <laughs> like the answer. Uh, and, um because uh, I'm going to tell you what I think. And, and I, I, I think that the big change from what I've seen from 20 years ago when I was on top of the world to now, and I don't think, and this is probably something I think you could address really well, I don't think, and I don't think you can highlight it enough, is that today's modern athlete, today's golfer, has the ability to control the narrative. Whereas 20 years ago, I did not have the control, uh, ability to control the narrative because I couldn't dictate what you were going to ask me. Mm-hmm. Now, these players can dictate what you're going to ask me through social media because I can get on, these players get on the Instagram and, 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 and the Twitters and the, all these different things, and they show what's going on. Well, that kind of forces you into a position of asking them, in a way, potentially what they want to be asked about. You, you, certainly you're going to have questions you're going to ask that might not be pertain to that. But the majority of what people are seeing and the fans are doing and how they're interacting, they want to know about this picture from the Bahamas or this fishing trip or that ski trip. And that's because they get to control the narrative. So like 1996, 97, we could have seen David Duvall, Spring Break, Baker's Bay <laughs> on Twitter. And <laughs> jumping off buildings. Then we would have been asking you jumping off buildings right. instead of why aren't you world number but one. It, I, mean, so it isn't that a, I mean, I think that's a perfect example. Yeah. Everybody had to ask the guys about jumping off the bridge or whatever it was. Right. Because they yeah. posted it, you know. We weren't talking about the golf. Well, they're, they're controlling the narrative. Well, Jason, I'll, I'll kick it over to you. I agree that was a good segue. It's almost like you're working in TV now. But, <laughs> at, you know, tr- trying to, to control the narrative from a, from a company perspective and, and where do you find that balance uh, 
in terms of being the leader of, of saying, all right, this is one where we just yep. want to sit back and kind of let things happen and see where the dust settles mm -hmm. versus no, this is an initiative we know we need to push forward on. So uh, when it comes to this kind of messaging, we try to stay on the offensive okay. uh, every day. Is this scrappy underdog talking? It is scrappy yeah. underdog, but <laughs> we're constantly generating content. Yeah. You know, who's the next musical group? Let's do a podcast, let's interview the musicians. Let's film them live in our own studio and then push that for free in high definition to literally millions of people using social and digital. So if you're doing that every day, then for sure whenever people tune in, their narrative's about, wow, Skull Candy is giving me something that I hadn't had before. They're helping me discover new talent. And that builds an emotional connection with the, you know, the teenager because they're like, well, geez, I, I'm not getting this kind of content from these other folks. This brand understands me. So just almost like overwhelming the social and digital feeds with this, uh, this content because there is an insatiable appetite among the young consumers for that kind of content. And that's what makes us different. We can talk for a while about trying to control the narrative and, and talking about how to shape culture when things yeah. are going well. But yeah. in golf and business, things sometimes go a little sideways, as no David, question. you mentioned before. If we look out on this range at TPC Sawgrass, there's 144 guys who can hit good golf shots. Mm -hmm. The winner is in all likelihood going to be the guy that minimizes his mistakes, especially on, on this golf course. David, what's the key when you're out on the 8th, ninth, 10th hole and things are going sideways? How do you find that mental reset to, to keep a – 71 from becoming a 75 and things like that well i think that that is the biggest challenge obviously in the game um and things don't go well every day but at times uh, similar to anything in any walk of life uh, you've got to just simply fall back on the basics uh, and get into uh be a bit conservative um you know i, I remember years and years ago uh, probably 96 or 7 in new orleans um, I was a, like a shot off the league going in the final round, and um, I hit every golf shot at the middle front of the green. You know, tried to minimize mistakes. You know, I ended up shooting 69, lost lost by a shot. Uh, but point being, when you, when things start getting sideways, you certainly that's not a time to get more aggressive. And I think that's the time to back off in sport, certainly in the game of golf, and start putting yourself in position to give yourself a chance to fight on, if you will, and get after it the next day, um, you know, and also you have to be very attentive to the fact that you st your mind starts racing and you start getting ahead of yourself, uh, and that's just not beneficial uh, in any way, shape, or form. You really have to be present in what you're doing, uh, and even when you're playing good, one of the biggest problems you have as a player is thinking of the prize at the end, you know, what comes with winning the players, what what uh, the, the, the fame, the recognition, uh, the, the opportunities to compete, the exemptions, the, all these things. Uh, but to get there, you have to pay attention to, to right now and the day-to-day -day and the little, the little task that is at hand. And, uh, you know, when I won here in 99, I had a shot on the ninth hole for my third out of the fairway bunker that I was like, if I pitch it out, I'm probably going to make a bogey. If I take this risk, which I took, and succeed, I have a good chance to make par. If I don't, I'm going to lose the golf tournament, you know. <laughs> but it's like it was calculated. Like at this point, the way this golf course is playing, I think I need to try to do this and try to hit this up through the trees, out of the sand, up near the green. And I pulled it off. But I knew at the same time, and, and in some ways, kind of thinking it through, knowing that if I pull it off, I still have a chance to win. If I don't pull it off, 
uh, I'm going to lose. The term is pretty much over. It sounds silly, but in some ways that gave me calm. Right. That I know what I'm doing. I've made a conscious choice. I've thought it through. Okay, let's see what happens. Yeah, let's execute. Is, there, is it a little bit of a, a tough habit to learn or, or a counterintuitive habit to break in terms of when it does start to go sideways? Like you said, your mind starts racing, and it's so easy to press and to kind of go on right. tilt that, that it's got, I would think that that's got to be a, a learned behavior to be able to say, all right, I need to slow down and, and kind of take things one shot at a time or even just, just get my swing back to a slower tempo to, to get the ball back in the fairway. It is, especially uh, week in, week out on the PGA Tour, because typically you don't play major championship-style golf courses, and, you know, you need to shoot five or six under par every day, and you've just really got to, for lack of a better way to put it, keep the pedal down and get mm -hmm. going. And the days it's, you're a bit off, you know, you know you're falling behind. The bigger weeks, I think that's as like Brooks Kepka has, has has addressed. It's it's almost easier. You know mistakes are going to happen. You know you're going to make bogeys. You know other players are going to make bogeys. You're trying to avoid the big problems, um, but you really start paying attention to the little the little things in these events, and you don't get ahead of yourself. It's hard, you know. Sometimes when you tee off at call it 1:30 in the afternoon on Thursday at whatever tournament it may be, and you're teeing off and you're eight shots behind already. You know, somebody in the morning shot 64. <laughs> you know. <laughs> So if you go out and have a good day and, and shoot 68, you're still four behind. You know, sometimes it's a yeah. hard thing to, to do, and that's where paying attention to what you do as an individual mm -hmm. I think is, is incredibly important in the game. Jason, I know you guys don't thread fairway bunker shots mm -hmm. through trees to 12 feet, but, but there's certainly some parallels in terms of in business and with skull candy, sometimes things get a little squirrely and no go question. sideways. And, and so what's the key for you from a culture perspective to kind of rallying your team and, and trying to keep your eye on the ball and making sure that one mistake doesn't turn into two or three down the road? I think um, as a leader especially, the one thing you got to keep in mind is leadership's not about you. It's about the team. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of folks that, hey, because I'm in charge, i got to walk in the room, have all the answers like what David was saying, and be the smartest guy in the room. But that's sometimes that can be the last thing you need to be because you're going to need the help of all the ideas that are coming out of the room, and your job's kind of to listen and then optimize for the good of the company and the team. And sometimes that means that you got to step back. you got to let her or him step up and bring kind of their personality and talent to bear. Um, and that's a really tricky balance. Um, I think the other piece is... Um, it's always easy to be negative. Mm -hmm. It's always easy to complain. The job of a leader is to provide that optimism and that hope. And that's hard to do on a daily basis, especially when the chips are down. Um, and you're always that way. That's your default mode. Let's be positive, optimistic. But there's always a moment. It's really tricky where it flips. And it's like, okay, now I got to step in and I got to be the catalyst and make some things happen. And, and knowing how to do that and when not to do it, that, that becomes the hardest thing, Will. A lot of adaptability, I yeah. think, that, that works in, in both sides of, of this discussion. David, as we mentioned, right now you're, you're competitive on the PGA Tour. You also spend some time in the analyst chair with Golf Channel. At this stage in your career, what's the, what's the biggest uh, challenge mentally to that balance and, and being able to step inside the ropes, not as much as you used to, but still being able to, to ensure that you're sharp when you do and and then also, you know, doing stuff with Golf Channel when you're yeah, You know, uh, a few, probably a few years ago, I was talking to another player on the range, and I do enjoy getting inside the ropes. I do enjoy playing and competing. Um, I think it's beneficial to what I'm doing when I'm analyzing 
to actually sit and, and, and have having been out and played with the players and talk to them and, and see what's going on. But at the same time, going into it, I realized that I play five or six times a year. I don't play 24 times a year. And with that, I'm at a distinct competitive disadvantage. I don't know how to quantify it, but talking with another top player, I came up with, we came up with, it's about a shot and a half to two shots a day. That's a lot out a here. A day, you That's know. A lot. So giving up, call it a shot and a half on conservative, giving up a shot and a half a day to Ricky Fowler. So I'm six behind technically when it, you know, start. It, it's hard. But the competitive nature uh, uh, of an athlete and the drive, it, it, I don't know if it ever kind of goes away. Um, but as much as anything, I also enjoy being out there. Uh, I played a practice round with Henrik Stenson in, in, uh, in 2016 at Troon. Eventual winner. Mm -hmm. Next year, I played a practice round. I was out with Kucher, ran second to Spieth with Spieth's heroics down the stretch. Mm -hmm. uh, played uh, some practice with Ricky Fowler and Brooks Kepka last year. You know, I try to seek out these top players, um, top people, which what I'm sure what you want in your in, in, in your field. Mm -hmm. I want to be around the top people now and, and and pick their brains and talk to them and watch them perform and watch them compete and see how they go about it. Especially because the game has changed so much and it's become such a power driven game. Um, it always has been. It's always been beneficial to be long. But now it's it, the game has, the culture of it has changed. It is kind of a bash game, and you go after it and you just hit it and go chase it. And to kind of, in a way, learn it uh, firsthand from being out there and playing and watching these guys, I think gives me a, a bit of an advantage when I sit and uh, have to talk about them. Yep, understandable. Uh, Jason, as a CEO, from your perspective, what's the biggest misconception about Creating a culture, sustaining a culture, building a brand. Well, for sure, culture has kind of become cliche. You know, you hear all these companies, hey, we're serving lunch, or we got a ping pong table, and we have a great culture, come and join us type thing. And so everybody's kind of claiming that, right? Um, Don't knock the ping pong table. Okay. The ping pong table has... Foosball. All right, that's fine. <laughs> so you can't force it, though. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, uh, obviously, it's got to be organic. And I'll give you an example here. So, you know, one of our big values is... Uh, first chair, last call. Mm -hmm. We're in Park City, so be on the first chair, have fun with your friends, your colleagues, and last call, of course, having fun in the evening. Work hard, play hard. That's one of our values. We celebrate it. So literally, um, when there's powder, you know, six inches is the rule. You know, it's going to be six inches of new powder. Employees don't show up to lunch, okay? So it, that's kind of funny because Grant Thornton's in our office during audit season in Q1. That's ski season. So it's no <laughs> wonder Skull Candy was chosen as a great culture. Half the company's never there in Q1, right? <laughs> you know? Got any openings? Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, all of a sudden right. I see you're, you're perking up here, Mr. Colorado. Mm -hmm. so I but can like, make a detour. When those employees come back and they're wearing their ski gear and they're kind of sweaty, but they're high-fiving each other all the way to their <laughs> chair, and they come in and they work till 7 o'clock, and in those seven hours, they get more work done than they did last whole week, mm -hmm. you know, because they're amped and they got out there with their friends and, and now they're, they're bought in, but they're kind of giving back to Skull Candy, you know, first chair, last call. Mm -hmm. So it kind of goes together because that's how you create the real bonds that create real culture. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, as we said at the outset, this is a little bit of a different uh, model for our Golf Channel podcast. We're recording this in front of uh, some VIP folks here, here with Grant Thornton. So we're switching over. We're doing some Q&A, okay. so uh, some audience participation, which is always fun. But, uh, David, we're going we're gonna to start with you here, and let's see here. I like this one. 
Can you talk about the role that camaraderie and competition with your fellow tour players played in your approach to your game, especially the mental side? Hmm. That's a difficult one, uh, simply because golf is an individual game, uh, individual sport. Certainly you have people who are on your side, uh, your caddy, your wife, your various coaches, but also a coach you have, maybe coaching six other players. Um, the camaraderie, I think, is just comes from one individual to another, knowing how incredibly difficult this sport is and how incredibly fleeting it is. Uh, the, the, the chase for perfection in this game is a fallacy. Um, you're simply trying to improve, minimize mistakes, uh, get sharper mentally, uh, being out with the top players and, and watching them and watching how they think their way around a golf course and, and conversing, you, you, you know, you kind of you pick things that might suit you and, and, and kind of discard the things that don't. Um, but that's where, you know, the difficulty comes in because you also have your approach that's led you over the last 20 years to the position you are on the PGA mm -hmm. Tour and in professional golf and the ability to compete and make a living. Um, you know, it's a very small fraction of people who can excel at this game, uh, simple, similar to, you know, virtually every other sport. So I think y you have... You know, there's an old, old, funny old story. Some young player came in the locker room complaining and bitching and moaning about his day. And 20-year veteran, grizzled, you know, said, let me tell you something, son. <laughs> half the people in here don't give a crap what you shot. And the other half <laughs> wishes a shot higher. <laughs> you know? There you and, go. And that's kind of the truth. And that's the truth in sport. And, and <laughs> so you, you certainly have your relationships and your friends. And, and you're trying to push each other along. But in the end, when they tee it up, I mean, we all know Brooks and DJ are, are tight. You know, well, they're trying to beat each other's brains in when they tee yeah. it off. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jason, we'll turn it to mm. you here. Uh, inevitably, there are moments of conflict between people and profit, moments of conflict between culture and what your business needs. How do you navigate those sort of dynamics when those conflicts come up? That's hard. I think... Um, See, we saved all the tough ones for the end. Yeah, here, if you can create a special culture in a company, and that's absolutely a goal, it kind of creates um, a security blanket, if you will. And what I mean by that is I'm sitting down with you, Will, and the performance hasn't been there. There's been some issues. Something's going on. If I can have that conversation and bring it back to, hey, let's remember now, Sony probably has five of you for the one position we have here. So in a way, you've got to bring it that much more every day just for us to keep up with these guys. And then we're banded together, so let's be completely honest here about what's going on, and let's overcome this obstacle together. So if you, can, if you have these values and you really embrace them and celebrate them as a company, you know, have them on the wall as you walk in every day and make it become part of the vernacular around the office, that becomes this way of just dealing with each other when, when times are tough. And you can have those tough conversations about performance and take some of the emotion out because now it's about the mission. Yeah. We're going to stick with you. We've got one more here. We've talked a lot about the mental challenges of the side of golf, but, but what about that? mental aspect of just being a CEO, pressure, self-doubt. Mm -hmm. How does that all play a role in terms of your position at the top of the food chain? Mm. Well, by the time you become a CEO, you've overcome lots of conflicts and obstacles, so you, you get used to that. You've got lots of war scars, you know what I mean? And I think the m more strategic you are in a business, the more you kind of have to step back. And it goes back to my point, like leadership's not about you. It's about your team. And sometimes you got to step back and give them the oxygen to figure things out. And then 
step in and help them when they come up with a plan. Uh, kind of the same type thing happens. Like, you got to be strategic. If you're in the weeds sometimes, we call it being the piccolo player, you're probably hurting the company. You got to let the people do their job, hold them accountable, but make sure they're still focused on the vision and the goals longer term. They don't lose track. Keep them on track. Mm -hmm. And if, if you kind of come back to that weekly, monthly, um, and through goal setting, that's typically the best way to do it. We got one more here for both of you. Mm -hmm. Just uh, you've both competed against Goliaths. Yours is named Tiger. Yours is named Apple. What are <laughs> the keys to winning against your respective uh, Goliaths, and then how much fun is it to beat them? Would you like to go? Sure. So <laughs> this one is near and dear to my heart, you know, because uh, believe it or not, guys, in uh, about a five billion dollar audio industry globally right now. Um, Apple, with just one SKU, AirPods, white, has 52% market share. Like, think about that. In consumer electronics, one SKU has over half the market. Uh, I don't think it's ever happened before, you know, in the history of consumer electronics. So it's an unbelievable com uh, competitor, right? So how do you win? My goodness. Well, you got to find your niche, okay? So I kind of touched on it earlier. It's all about music, okay? So whenever somebody buys Apple AirPods, it's, it's hard plastic. Um, if you get sweaty, you're working out. Sometimes it has trouble staying in. And it's not optimized the sound for true audiophile music enjoyment. So what does Skull Candy do? Well, we make one that's super comfortable, stays in your ear, but now you can get the kind of bass response that you'd expect from a pair of over-ear headphones. But it's in true wireless. So you find your niche, and then you connect that with the messaging externally through social and digital, the marketing piece, like, hey, if you love music, especially if you love bass, you know, hip-hop, hey, these are the true wireless for you. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's the way you connect the dots because you've got to find your place. If you go, you know, and try to be just like them, you'll probably lose. They're Apple, for gosh sakes. So you have to find those edge um, use cases that work for you. David, it's a small amount of people that can say they found <laughs> an edge against Tiger back when he was at his peak. What, what was the key, and then how much fun was it to get get the better of him at least a couple times. You know, I, similar to what just saying, you know, this is Apple. Well, gosh, this is Tiger, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and it, it's, a, it's a similar thing. Uh, trying to compete and trying to beat Tiger Woods is obviously a monumental task. Um, I felt like if I played great golf and he played great golf, I could beat him three, three and a half times out of ten, you know? And I think in competition, uh, you have to be honest. So you're, you're talking about a once-in-a-lifetime, certainly a generational player, arguably the greatest player has ever been. But I really felt like I could beat him. And I think the thing is, is, is not being afraid to compete as much as anything. Certainly, uh, you know, I don't see it as being defeatist at all when you're like, it's like recognizing as who, who Jack Nicholas was, mm -hmm. you know? And, and similar to sending out those AirPods, which are entirely uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and 52%, uh, um, you know, that's just, that's just recognizing reality. And I think as a competitor, as an athlete, you have to recognize realities and what they are. I mean, you have to do and prepare yourself uh, to beat them. I felt like I could beat them, you know, and, and, you know, give me, I wanted his best. And as a competitor, you know, in any golf tournament I won, I wanted the person I was competing against to play the absolute best they could and have the greatest day they've ever had because I wanted them to know that they couldn't beat me. You play as well as you can, you're not going to beat me. I'm better, you know. And, and, and so 
that's kind of how I approach things. And through that is just simply uh, preparation for the, for the uh, event, uh, preparation for those days, um, recognizing that at times competing against one player might not be the same as competing against Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. You know that it's going to be harder with Tiger. You know that there's going to be no mistakes. You know he's going to play nearly flawless. You know he's going to make the putt when it has to be made. So you have to be very, very present. And I think that when you compete against a, a Goliath like him, uh, it almost can give you a bit of a hyper focus because if you get start paying attention to anything he's doing, anything that's going on, you're done for. You know, and so I, what I really did when I competed with Tiger was really paid attention to every little detail of my own and tried to ignore what was going on with him. I knew he was going to succeed. And I knew he was going to play well. So I had to pay attention to my own, what's in my own house to have a chance. I think that, that uh, the record bears out that you got the better of him more than, more than a lot of people did of your, <laughs> of your era. It's certainly an uphill battle for both of you, but I appreciate uh, the insight both on that question and, and on the, the other ones that we went through. This has been a fun, fun little chat here. So I'd say thank you to David thank Duvall. You. Thank you to Jason Hodell. Welcome. Thank you to Grant Thornton for presenting, as I said, this special edition of the Golf Channel podcast. And thanks to the folks here in the room who have uh, listened and have not dropped any forks, which has been very good. But uh, as I said, I'm your host, Will Gray. Thanks again for listening to this special edition of the Golf Channel podcast with David Duvall, with Jason Hodell, and thanks to our friends at Grant Thornton. Hey, Fidelity, how can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Oh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.